0: I'm going to take a few minutes here to pray for all sorts of things, including our sister church, um, and then we'll dive into the sermon. So let's pray. Jesus, um, we thank we are so thankful that you um, let us do so many cool things, um, like travel the world and share you with people. Um, Lord, would you come and go to our? Well, would you go to our sister church today? And would you encourage them and remind them that we are here um, and we are excited about what lies ahead with them. Lord, would you um, show us, um, as their sister church, how we can best love them. Lord, we ask that their ministry would be fruitful, that people would hear the gospel and repent. Lord, and that there would be um, a great work done there through um, our family there. Lord, we um, come to you today recognizing that we are sinners, um, that we are far from you, and that if it weren't for Jesus Christ and what he had done, we would be very, very far from you indeed. And so, Lord, I just pray for anybody here who doesn't know uh, the Lord, uh, that doesn't know you, Lord, that they would um, hear you, that something would shift inside of their heart and in their mind and that they would see you in a new way. Lord, for those of us who are believers, I pray that what we say here and what we hear from you, Lord, it would be transforming, that it would meet us in a place of, of need, um, Lord. And uh, I ask God that um, uh, what we say and do here would be glorifying to you. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. They say silence is golden. But every once in a while, and from certain people, it's fool's gold. Especially when the silence streams from God. Intimacy with God when God isn't there. Intimacy with God when you pray and beg God to act... And nothing happens intimacy with God when you pray and seek and ask and the Lord has nothing for you her name is Ashley and for two years she has battled an illness that remains unidentified dozens upon dozens upon dozens upon dozens of doctors visits later and she and her husband Neil have yet to discover what causes these ailments And many, many people have prayed and begged and asked, and no one can understand why some weeks Ash is feeling great and why suddenly she wakes up one day and is off her feet for a week. His name is John, and he is one of the only three deacons in a small congregation in northwest England. He has prayed for nine years for a pastor to come to this church and none has been sent. His name is Peter, and for the last five years, he has been fighting a losing battle for his marriage. His wife prefers the embrace of another man, and no matter how many attempts he makes at reconciliation, at forgiveness, she spurns all of them, and now his fifth anniversary passes, and the divorce papers are signed. Her name is Jen. For years, she has begged God that her mother would follow in her father's footsteps and place her faith in Jesus Christ, and yet there has been no movement. Heaven greets her prayers with silence. Yes, they say silence is golden, but it is fool's gold when it comes from the mouth of the Almighty. And the question is, what do we do when God does not act? What do we do when the Almighty refuses to answer? What do we do when we pick up the phone and find silence on the other end? The answer is found in Psalm 13. Would you turn there with me? Psalm 13. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted... In your steadfast love, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. Today I want us to explore the question: How do I experience intimacy with God when God isn't there? How do I experience intimacy with God when God is silent? How do I experience intimacy with God when He does not act? And before we answer those questions, I think there's some preliminary questions that we need to answer. Um, three, actually. Um, and the first is: How do I experience God's silence? How do I experience God's silence? Because I will make the note at the front that out that God's silence is experienced, not actual, in the Christian's life. God's, God's silence is experienced, not actual, in the life of the Christian. I want to be clear that the silence of God we're speaking about is experienced in prayer. I want to be clear that um, it might occasionally come to us in the Word, but mostly in prayer. Uh, David, who wrote this psalm in Old Testament times, could not pop open his Samaritan study Bible and see what God had to say about any given situation. Uh, The Old Testament would say this, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Most Old Testament people, most laymen, most people that weren't kings or priests, had to just wait until they visited the temple or went to tabernacle. Kings or priests might occasionally be visited by a prophet. A king was required to read the book of the law at the beginning of every year. But for the most part, God was not easily heard in the times of the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament and is today when we all, in front of us, have about 77 copies of Scripture. In fact, in this room alone, there are probably more copies of Scripture uh, than there were probably available in the temple at this time. We experience God's silence in a different way in the Old Testament, which doesn't mean it's any worse. We have to remember that in the Old Testament, you can read two verses, and in that span, cross 25 years. Abraham only actually heard from God a handful of times in his life. Same with Noah, David, Saul, Job. So there is a, there's a benefit that we have uh, as New Testament believers, as people indwelt by the Holy Spirit and people who own and have available to them numerous copies of the English translation of the Bible. But I want to understand that... Um, While you go to the Word to hear God, you may go to the Word in times of need and hear God there, there are still times that we we hear silence on the other end of our prayers. And that is the silence I'm mainly thinking about today. And so that is the first question. How do I experience God's silence, mostly in prayer? What is the nature of God's silence is another important question. To answer that, we actually have to answer in two parts. Because there are right ways to understand the silence of God and wrong ways to understand the silence of God. And the silence of God is not the silence experienced by a wife whose husband comes home, turns on the TV, and never speaks to her. That is not the silence we are speaking of here. The silence we are speaking of here is not the silence a daughter or son experiences when daddy comes in the door, plops down on the chair, falls asleep with a beer can in his hand. In essence, God's silence is not related to laziness, anger, passivity, inability, selfishness, impudence, unapproachability, lack of concern, or lovelessness. I'm going to read that again. God's silence is not related to laziness, anger, passivity, inability, selfishness, impudence, unapproachability, lack of concern, or lovelessness. So then what is the nature of God's silence? God's silence is the silence experienced by a captain in battle. He and his troops are locked in at the line, and he keeps sending runners back. What are our orders? What are our orders? What are our orders? And no orders are returned down the line. It is the silence experienced by a basketball team when the the players keep looking to the coach to call a timeout, and he doesn't and lets them keep playing. They want to know what's going on. They need to understand what what in the world is going on with the situation at hand, and the coach is not responding. God's silence does not spring from selfishness or laziness. Instead, God's silence is reasoned, measured, considered, purposeful, and sanctifying. And then lastly, what are the reasons for God's silence? Then we'll get into the text. Um, God's silence is purposeful. So I want to talk about some reasons that the scriptures present as God's silence. First, that the silence of God can be caused by ongoing sin in the life of a believer. There are some lament psalms that talk about, God, why are you far from me? And then in the text, the psalmist will confess to a sin. This, the, in our text today, in the, in the silence I'm speaking of, it does not directly refer to silence experience because of ongoing, unrepentant, unconfessed sin in your life. Although you may be experiencing silence from God for that reason. The silence of God can also be caused by silence of the believer. Simply put, um, if you aren't talking to God, it doesn't surprise me that you're not hearing anything from God. Third, the silence of God can be because there is no need for God to say anything. Many times we do this thing where I need to know what God's will is for my life. I need to know what God's will is for my life. I need to go. what God's will is for my life. High schoolers, you are like especially prone to this. I need to know. And like, it's God, should I get a job at Oberweiss or should I get a job at, at, at um, Taco Bell? And you pray and you pray and God doesn't answer. And the frank reason is because God doesn't care where you work as long as it doesn't violate righteousness. Go and do. There's a wonderful book. Andrew, I gave it to you. It's called Just Do Something. And I realized, side note, after I gave you that book, I thought, "Hmm, I wonder if she's going to think that I think she's lazy. Not what I thought. It's a wonderful book about the will of God. And it's just, just do something. A lot of times God will just not really say a whole lot. Not because he doesn't care or because he's lazy. Because he wants to leave it up to you. The silence of God can also, though, be caused by a test or trial. I was really instructed in this, of, by all things, a tweet. Um, and those of you know, I'm frantically finishing a book on social media and my general disdain for it. If you wouldn't mind praying for me, tomorrow's my deadline, so I need to, like, frantically finish chapter 2 and send it off to my editor before, like, end of day tomorrow. I hope he's okay with getting it at 5, because that's when he's getting it. So, um... So a tweet, of course, right? And and Rick Warren wrote this. The teacher is always silent when the test is given. The teacher is always silent when the test is given. And while at first I thought this was flippant, I decided that it's very true um, that uh, God may be silent as he is stepping back and watching how you are going to handle the adversity or the test or whatever it is in your life. And I think, in part, that's some of the silence I'm looking at. And then the fifth kind of silence is silence from some kind of oppression, where you are under oppression, attacked, as, this, as the psalmist says throughout this text, and he feels like God isn't coming to save him. That would be the final kind. And so, in reality, anybody in this room could experience, be experiencing one or multiple or all of the forms of silence experienced in this, but the text primarily has in view silence from God when you need saved from some kind of predicament in your life. But here's what we must ultimately remember, that for believers, God works out all things for good. God's goal in the life of the believer is the highest good for that person. Secondly, we also have to remember that God's will for the believer, if we are wondering what God's will was, I can answer 98.9% of it right now, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, his will is for our sanctification. God's will is for our holiness. And so on some level, the silence you experience, regardless of what kind it is, is intended to make you grow as a believer in Jesus Christ. It is intended to make you grow. The test, the teacher is always silent after the test is distributed. So in review, the silence of which we speak today is a silence found when we ask God to do something or say something and he does not respond. His silence is not rooted... uh, in selfishness or laziness or hate. His silence is rooted in planned, considered, sanctifying forethought. And while there are many reasons for God to be silent, His silence is always for our good. So let's look at the text then, back to Psalm 13. This is the fun part. Um, Short text. Many things to say. Uh, The text is basically organized into three movements. Verses 1 through 2 are uh, our protest. Verses 3 and 4 are prayer. And verses 5 and 6 are pledge. We'll dive through each of them one at a time. Verses 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me like a heartbeat? In this passage, we hear the phrase repeated four times, how long, how long, how long, how long. Exasperation, exhaustion, disdain. How long equals this is not good enough. How long equals I'm not going to be able to take this much longer. How long is I am at the absolute end of my rope. How long, O Lord? Many of you just need to know that that's okay to say. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? In the psalmist's mind, his need, which is ever so dire, has somehow fallen off the to-do list on God's fridge. God, God, hello, hello, you need to do this. God, have you forgotten about this? Will you hide your face from me? How long will you hide your face from me? In the the Israelite mind, the face of God is like a spotlight on a person. And when the spotlight is on them, things are good. But God's spotlight, his face has turned away from the psalmist. He has turned away. First of all, he's not looking anymore. If his face is hidden, if his face is turned away, he can't see, which is why the psalmist will ask at the beginning of verse 3, consider. Secondly, God's face of blessing and protection and grace has turned away from the believer and now he's left in the dark. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance, also face, upon you and give you his peace. the Lord's face of blessing, of grace, is no more. It is hidden. It is obscured. No longer do we look through a glass dimly. We're looking at a black sheet of paper. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Verse 2. We all know this feeling. This is the hamster wheel we get on in our minds and run, run, run over and over and over, Lord, what am I going to do about this? I don't have the money to pay for this. What am I going to do? My son is just out there doing this crazy thing. What am I going to do? She's not getting better. What am I going to do? He says, I must take counsel in my soul. And I picture in my mind's eye, walking, pacing inside your heart, pacing and fretting and wringing your hands. And have sorrow in my heart. At the very core of his, at the very core of his being, in his heart, he has only sorrow, and it's there all the day. It does not end. There's not a minute that doesn't go by that he's not thinking about the problem before him. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Ah, yes. You can't have a lament psalm without an enemy, almost always. Note that the importance of the enemy. Is, is not in the enemy's identity. It's just in the enemy's presence. It's not important. Oh, who is it? Is it, is it a person? Is it a, is it a disease? Is it a financial thing? Is it da, da, da? it doesn't matter who. You can fill in the blank on whatever your enemy is. The problem is, Lord, this thing is going to be exalted over me. How long? How long? How long? How long? Protest. The prayer of a righteous man or a righteous woman is often filled with protest. But notice that it does not stop at protest. It moves to prayer. Requests in verses 3 and 4. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Three requests. Consider, answer, light up my eyes. That was easy. It's helpful when you're reading the Psalms to figure out what exactly he's asking for. When you're reading prayers in the New Testament, look for the so that. I bow my knees before the Father so that this would happen. So that this would happen. Three things consider the word consider can also be translated as look and it's the same attitude that my little brothers used to give me or my mom kyle 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 kyle, kyle can you come look daddy look at this daddy would you look at this daddy 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 mommy 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 look i am in a situation can't you see but i don't need you just to look I don't need you just to consider. The last thing I need in my life is another innocent bystander to the constant craziness. What I need is for you to God to answer. Don't just look. Solve the problem. Do not do what my mechanic does. Well, you do have a problem in there. And then ask, and then just stand there. No, 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 no. I want you to go in there. I want you to find the problem. I want you to fix the problem, and let's be done. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Light up my eyes is a common Old Testament idiom, but I think we all know this. William Van gemeren writes, A man relieved from his inner troubles and blessed with God's protection, peace, and favor shows his inner spiritual condition in his outward appearance. His eyes sparkle with God's grace. On the other hand, The experience of anguish is expressed by a dimness of the eyes. There's a student who comes to chaos with some regularity. His name is Dean. And Dean recently um, put his faith in Christ about three weeks ago. I'm looking at Stephen. Three weeks ago? Um, And I tell you that this kid looks different. In a way that I have never seen or experienced before, the kid looks different. He was kind of like one of those like... Okay, he wears all black, kind of the melancholy kid, you know, I think he always kind of had a gray cloud over his head, and now, like, I look at him, and he's, like, smiling and bright, his eyes are wide, I can't even, I can't, I have no, I had no category for this until just a couple of weeks ago, and I sat down with him, and he's been talking to me. He looks visibly different as God has entered into his life, and the inward peace and protection of God makes his, what did he say, his eyes sparkle with God's grace. Now, there are two reasons why he requests this. First of all, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Death probably isn't exactly what's in view. This is, on some level, hyperbolic. Um, And maybe in our worst moments, we would all say this. I just want to die. Now, don't relegate that just to my high schoolers, because all of us do this. (laughs) Or maybe you don't want to die. You don't want to sleep. It's not that you want to sleep the sleep of death. You just want to sleep the sleep of sleep. You just want to crawl inside your bed and never come out again. It's just too much. I'm just going to hibernate till December. So death isn't exactly death. It can be related to the enemy of uh, verse 2. But he also doesn't want this, so that his foes rejoice because I am shaken. Constantly in the Israelite mind, constantly in this psalmist mind, is the idea that God, if this trial, if in this trial I fail, if I am shaken, this could be translated, if I fall, your fame will be on the line. It's not entirely about me and God. This is also about your reputation. John Calvin writes that it would be be a thing ill-becoming the character of God were he to abandon his servant to the mockery of the ungodly. God, my problems aside, my reputation aside, if I fall, if I am abandoned to the godly, you are not going to seem as great as you are this is the plea of moses when they are leaving and god gets so fed up with the israelites that he decides i'm just going to kill them all and we're going to start again and 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 moses says god then what will people say then what will people say about you your greatness will not be made manifest in us, because in our brokenness and in our tragedies, God's name is made most famous when he delivers us out of them, which is why God's tagline in the Old Testament is, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. We consider Jennifer Aniston or this movie star or that music person famous because of this album or this work. Da Vinci's works we think of da vinci as famous all of da vinci's works pale in comparison to i am the lord your god who brought you out of the land of egypt this is the stamp of approval of god's glory and god's majesty and it cannot be denied but god if you let me fall inside of this tragedy now the interesting thing is that this is generally where most of us hang up the phone when we pray in the midst of trial We generally halt at the end of this is what I want you to do. We pray and say, God, I'm really upset about this situation, and this is this is what I need you to do. Amen. About my day. The psalmist has two more verses for us. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Very few of us can get from how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever to I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And in the beginning of verse 5, we encounter the most important word in the scriptures. And the word is but. I'm looking at DN, But. I've always wanted to preach a series, and I think I'm going to do it in youth group, called Big Butts of the Bible. Really badly. It's coming. Oh, you just wait. You guys. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. His words move from protest, frustration, to prayer, to trust in the hesed, the the steadfast love of the Lord. The steadfast love of the Lord, his hesed. That is like the crowning jewel of all of God's character. His faithful, loyal love. Unshakable, unmovable. And it is in this that I have trusted. And because I have trusted in your steadfast love, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Because of this past because of this past thing, I will, I will rejoice in your salvation, and I will sing to the Lord, verse 6, because of in the past you have dealt bountifully with me. And so, here I'm going to nerd out for a minute. Hebrew poetry often practices something called chiasm or chiastic structure. And it's generally A, B, B prime A, or A, B, B prime A. And the swing is in the middle. The most important parts are in the middle. And notice it goes. Past, future, future, past. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. And because he has dealt bountifully with me, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation and I will sing to the Lord. The psalmist rejoices in... He says, my my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Salvation is the whole well-being of the child of God. and So he knows my salvation applies to to all of me, not just my spiritual life, not just my little compartmentalized this part of me. I go to church on Sundays and I sing in the worship team, and that's when salvation's in effect. But here in my marriage and here at work and here with my kids. No, the whole thing. And so God's whole salvation can solve the whole problem. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And so this is what happens. He is able to pledge to the Lord, to promise the Lord, to make a commitment to the Lord of how he will go forward in light of his situation based on the, based on the past character and actions of God. Let me say that again. The psalmist is able to say, despite my present situation, I know how I will go forward because of who you have been and what you have done. He decides to act faithfully. Now, here's what a lot of us would like to do. A lot of us would like to do is do versus do protest protest and pray. Say, God, I'm really upset about this. This is what I want you to do. I pray and you don't do it. And so I'm going to react like a 13-year-old girl who doesn't get her best friend, doesn't text her back. And so I'm going to pout and write nasty things on Facebook. And I'm going to do whatever the heck I want. Forget obedience, forget faithfulness. No, I'm going to punish you, God, because you haven't done right by me. He doesn't do that. He chooses to respond faithfully because he knows of the Lord's steadfast love, because he knows the salvation, because he knows that the Lord has dealt bountifully with me. And what I suddenly learned from this is that maybe when in the middle of a trial, it's not so much I should be trying to figure out what God is doing, but actually that is the time to count your blessings and figure out this is how God has worked in my life in the past. So most likely this is how God is going to move in the future. And this is the New Testament's view of the entire Old Testament. This is the Israelites' mind view on all of God. We can know what God will do in the future because of what he has done in the past. And so this is, this is the big idea. This is the major point. When God is silent, we continue to act faithfully based on God's character and his past action. When we perceive that God does not respond to our prayers, we continue to act righteously relying on his past action and continuing character. The refuge of the frustrated prayer is God's character and God's actions. The book of Esther tells a story of a young girl ripped from her home and forced, essentially, to be um, a concubine-slash-wife-slash-sex slave to the Persian king. And while she's doing this... um, the Jews who are living in exile, they, they, they um, suddenly a plot starts to develop to kill all of them. A genocide of all the Jews living in the land. A man comes to Esther and says, who knows that you might have been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. And she decides to go before the king, unannounced and unasked for, which is punished by penalty of death, and beg for the... Beg for the salvation and freedom of her people. And she does it and her people are saved. She lays all of her life down, all of it, in order to try to save her people. But the interesting part about the book of Esther is God does not play a role in the narrative. He has no dialogue in the entire book. And instead of Esther punishing God, instead of the Jews punishing God for his silence, they continue to act faithfully. Even though the word of the Lord was rare in those days, she says, I know the right thing to do, and so I will do it. And this is the choice that Neil and Ashley and John and Peter and Jen have had to make and have had to make over and over and over again. Instead of spiting God for his silence, they have chosen to be obedient. And I can tell you, um, Neil and Ash, they actually sat Steph and I up. And they are, um, we actually had a conversation probably within the first three months of us dating, like who's the most in, who are the most like, impacting, influential people in your life? And I think we both said Neil and Ash because the way that they have endured in trial uh, is, I don't want to say inspiring, because that's like what we say about movies. I mean, it is, it is incredible. And it makes me want to love Jesus more in all of that. The way Neil has served her and loved her when she's just like, I feel unexplainedly nauseous and exhausted and flu-like symptoms and gross. You remember that I made this illustration at the beginning of the captain who's begging his general for orders and he doesn't get any back? Or the basketball team who's looking to their coach to give them a timeout to know what to do and they don't get one. And it's not because like, the coach doesn't know what to do. It's not because the general is freaking out because he's caught on so surprised. The reason there's no more orders and the reason there's no timeout is because you just are supposed to keep going. The reason that, he doesn't, that or, the general doesn't send orders down the line is because there is no need for any more orders. Just keep fighting. Yes, you, you, you actually are doing okay. God's, God's, when the basketball t- team is looking to the coach and he's, he's not giving them a timeout, it's not like they just stop on the court and be like, fine, I'm, I'm going to stand right here until you do what I want and just wait. They just have to keep playing. And many of us would rather do otherwise. We would punish God by sinning, doing what, what is right in our own eyes to go <clears throat> to the Almighty and say, look, fine, I'll do it my way. Our application is that we need to choose to live faithfully in the light of God's silence. Another thing is that we do need to, to know that how we do this. And, and the key to moving to doing that, like the gas in the tank of actually moving, faithful, living faithfully is moving past prayer, past, past protest, past prayer, and then to pledge. That's the linchpin that this whole text swings on. It's that he decides that he's going to do something and he tells the Lord he's going to do it. Verse 5 is the most important part. Do not do verses 1 through 4 and then skip verses 5 and 6. Verses 1 through 4 are only meaningful in light of verses 5 and 6. In your life, in whatever your situation is, do not pray, protest, and then do not then go to prayer and ask God to do something without telling God, but you know what, in light of all of this, I'm going to choose to live faithfully as I possibly can in this situation. That is your pledge. Your pledge is, is it's almost like the slingshot. The pledge is the slingshot. And then you wait. You keep acting faithfully and you wait. We've got to wait for God to work in his own timing. And this is best illustrated by uh, Gandalf the Grey in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings when he says, A wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. God is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. And the bonus for Christians is that those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And so we engage ourselves in a cycle of waiting, strength, waiting, strength, waiting, strength, waiting, strength. That said, some of us do need to learn how to protest. When I preached the last lament psalm, my heart was to give people a vocabulary. And some of you, again, just need let me put some words in your mouth. Um, And it's okay to protest. Some of you need to learn how to pray prayers of how long? Will you forget me forever? Someone has likened lament to a child who, undergoing discipline from her father, still runs back and is beating on his chest, crying. And though she is frustrated by the trial, though she is angered by what is going on from her father's hand, she still clings to him. This is what lament is. And then lastly, we need to claim gladly that we have a slightly different story as new testament believers on a couple of levels and again the first is that uh, The advantage of the written word is that through it. We can know the heart and mind of god even when we feel like we can't The scriptures say that we have everything we need for life and godliness In this book the revealed things belong to man the hidden things belong to god The revealed things belong to man and to us and to our children Everything you need to endure a trial on some level, your marching orders are found in this book. And it's not like we can treat prayer as then God's extra word. Like this is the basis stuff. But then I get like the college level version of God's word to me in prayer. No, like whatever God tells you in prayer, whatever God tells you through his spirit, whatever God tells you through other people or through your leaders is going or should align directly with this book. So we as New Testament believers, as actually 21st century New Testament believers, have the option of having this book on our phones and on our computers and five copies of them on the shelves, the one that like, is the family Bible but nobody ever uses because it's the family Bible, so it sits fancy on the shelf, but then there's like, the actual family Bible that we all actually read. This is the advantage that we have as New Testament believers. Again, David did not have a copy of the Samaritan Study Bible. To flip open and say, Oh, this is exactly what God had for me in my situation. Awesome, here I go. Joseph, who is sitting in prison for years and years and years, doesn't have the opportunity of flipping open his, his his Samaritan study Bible and going, Oh, this is why God works all things out for the good of those who love him. He's just hanging out and living faithfully. We have the advantage of the written word, and then we also have the advantage that the Spirit of God Himself dwells inside each of us if you are a believer in Christ. The scriptures say in Romans 8, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The spirit of God has a directed, intentional, purposeful plan, ongoing prayer ministry for you so that when you don't know what to pray, so that when God is silent and you don't know how to respond, there is constant divine dialogue about whatever situation you are in. And the ultimate end of that is we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. The outcome of the Spirit's prayer ministry in each of us is things working out for good. And then lastly, Jesus Christ. It is no accident that Jesus is the Word, that His name is, is the word the logos that meant a great different things to a great different many people but it would have meant to the old testament believer or a jew or someone in this time do you know when else they heard the phrase the word of the lord when isaiah came knocking on the door and said this is what the word of the lord says to you i have a word of the lord for you jesus comes and he is the word the total, final, complete, and climactic communication from God to man. He is the fullness of God. And so if you need to know what God is like, if you want to know if God is speaking to you, he has in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The word, by his word, upholds the universe. Jesus Christ is the word, and in him we know that bottom line, on some level, God is not silent. We do not serve a God that is far off, that is impish, that is impudent, because he has spoken to us. And then when God fails to act in the way we want, when we start to doubt and wonder, has God abandoned me? How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Has God totally forgotten my cause? Where is God? Is God with me in this? Emmanuel. God with us. Who said, lo, I am with you even until the end of the age. Jesus Christ, who was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried, descended into hell, and on the third day it rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven, it is Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. We have no need to doubt if God is for us or against us, we have no need to doubt if God is in the battle with us because he says, Lo, I am with you even until the end of the age. And actually, out of that, you kind of get two members of the Trinity at once. Bingo. The Holy Spirit living inside of you and Jesus who says, Lo, I am with you to the end of the age. Awesome. What we must remember is that we must be faithful. That in the response, this is how we find intimacy with God when God isn't there. You do the right thing. You be faithful. You act. You live in accordance to what you know. Walking by the Spirit and remembering that there is a God who is on our side and his name is Jesus Christ. How fitting is it that we're going to do communion today and remember all of these things. I'm going to pray, and then we'll transition into that. Jesus, um, we have heard your words to us. Seek the Lord while he may still be found. I prayed to God, and he answered me and delivered me of all my fears. Let us draw near to the throne of grace with confidence that we may find help in our time of need. So we come to you, God, and sometimes when we least expect it, we are not greeted by response or action. But by silence, we seek you and you can't be found. We pray and you don't answer and we remain in our fears. We draw near with confidence and we find no help in our time of need. God, we have come to expect silence from a spurned friend or a betrayed lover, but not from you. You are the God of faithfulness and action and of power. You are the God who answers prayer, except when you don't. It is in these deafening silences and these pregnant pauses that we are at once incredibly dismayed and profoundly disappointed. Where were you, God? Suddenly, we realize that we have equated your faithfulness with the reliability we seek in cars and appliances. We want to press a button and for it to work. We want you to, to pray and see you act, move, speak, and save. Forgive us God for seeing you as a kind of design divine slot machine prayers in answers out help us to see your silence and stillness as a kind of nearness for you are never far from any of us as a friend who sits silently in a room makes her presence very known so your silence makes your presence somehow more tangible more real more noticed we pray this in the name of jesus who experienced your silence so we could hear you speaking Amen.